KVLA Talk 1580 is raining now. Uh, if you're in uh, California, you know, yeah, we got some, we got some days ahead. We got some days ahead, probably all the way through the new year. So take it slow. Take it slow. Look, I am so excited uh, to have for our deep dive today the vice president of programs for Common Cause. Uh, who's got more than two decades of experience as a voting and civil rights lawyer known for her leadership in redistricting, representation, and championing championing community-centered campaigns to increase public participation, challenge gerrymanders through litigation, and secure reforms through ballot initiatives and legislative advocacy. Um, Kathy Feng, welcome. I am so pleased to be with you this morning, Dominique, and what a good introduction. I'm going to take that down so I can remember it. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. Uh, great to have you on. I, I, I feel like this is the first time you've been on with me on KBLA, right? Oh, we've talked before about mostly about voting um, and leading up to elections. Okay. Uh, you know, I know you but always were on front page. And the... again, but I have changed titles since then. Okay. Yeah. You have new titles. Um, so, so um, does that mean you're doing different work? Yeah, I, the, some of the work that I used to do just around redistricting and voting rights. Now I'm expanding to think of, about our program areas for media and democracy. Thinking about how we make sure that there's good, strong local journalism that we don't just consolidate them into giant mega corporations. Mm-hmm. Um, and also thinking about justice and democracy. Right? How is it that our system of uh, government has relied upon incarcerating people predominantly black and brown uh, and how that carceral system has fallen heavily on people's backs who are the most marginalized, right? And and what does that mean when we take people out of the voting system, out of uh, being able to choose their elected representatives, out of being able to choose policies that might actually improve our communities as opposed to just throwing more people into jail. It's a pretty big portfolio, but uh, all of those are important areas. Um, and of course, you know, I, I feel like maybe the role of media, especially um, AM radio stations, which I'm on right now, is so mm-hmm. under discussed or undercalculated in our political analysis because there are literally thousands of of right-wing radio stations that are shaping people's ideas about whether or not elections were fair and what politicians take what positions and what districts are are written and how they're written that are shaping politi- mm-hmm. people's political ideas and beliefs. And, you know, when mm-hmm. it comes to ownership by black people or BIPOC people of any kind, women, uh, progressives, it's just almost nothing. That's right. I, I think that, Unfortunately, this country has a very ugly history, but also a very ugly present that has given some people um, all the rights and deprived other people consistently and systematically based on race, right? And so a lot of what we're now looking at is just trying to unpack some of those institutions and make them fair, right? Level playing fields. And we're not even talking about, you know, some people think that that talking about Black Matter, Black Lives Matter is giving some people special privileges. No, it's just getting people onto a level playing field so that our system does what it says it should do, which is to treat every person equally and equitably. 
I mean, from the standpoint of a person tracking headlines and tracking legislation, it seems like we're going in just the opposite direction. Um, it seems like uh, we're seeing more gerrymandering, more um, obstacles to voting. I mean, <laughs> the uh, recent uh, decision that only, uh, you know, that, that, that seems to be saying only... Um, only the Department of Justice will be able to sue for, for example, um, for, you know, violations of our voting rights. Mm-hmm. Um, those, mm-hmm. those kinds of massive footprints seem to be leading in just right. the opposite direction. Yeah, it's definitely true that we have seen a real backlash um, since about 2011-12, and I'll just say uh, it's not a coincidence that that's when we elected our first black president, that um, a lot of states at the state level, at the local level, started to push for much more restrictive voting practices. Um, And every step of the way, each time people pushed back, right, by passing more expansive laws or courts said, no, that's unconstitutional, some of these legislators will get more and more creative. And their latest ploy is to try to push for uh, restriction of the rights of individuals to bring lawsuits to challenge these restrictive voting laws and to say only the Department of Justice can do it. Right. Now, the Department of Justice, depending on who the president is, might be fully embracing the role of protecting the voting rights of people who were intended to be protected by our Constitution or... Uh, they could they could go slow. And what we've seen is that that ebb and flow uh, can can happen depending on what the the outlook of a particular president or their administration might be. And what we need to be sure of is that at all times, 24 seven, 365 days a year, that there is an ability for citizens to stand up for the right to vote. And that includes then individuals or organizations being able to bring those those challenges to gerrymandered lines uh, or to lo- laws that are intended to strip people of their right to vote. We wish you all. To be able to challenge that in court. So as a voting and civil rights lawyer, I mean, isn't it, isn't that what the function of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and the Mexican American, <laughs> you know, Legal Defense and Education Fund and uh, the, right. you know, these types of organizations is not really what they do. I mean, that's yeah, kind that of their main purpose. That that is that is what they do. They they are um, centered around looking at uh, places, taking in information, listening to people's stories and uh, where people are being treated uh, based on their race or other protected status um, in a way that is discriminatory or taking away their rights, they're defending them in courts, and oftentimes successfully so. And what I'll say is that these efforts to restrict voting rights, is it's a cynical effort basically by politicians who are very afraid of losing power. They're looking at the demographics. They're realizing that yeah. they may be on the wrong side of history, but they're going to do whatever they can to try to manipulate and take advantage while they can. And in this case, they are manipulating voting laws. They're manipulating uh, who's on courts. They're manipulating the size of courts. They're trying to change all of the rules just before they need to give up power because the demographics are changing. And they want to try to 
push off that eventuality. Right. It's like um, kind of gaming the system to uh, maintain minority rule, really, or or to mm -hmm. avoid representative democracy, at least. That's right. That's right. That's right. And I think that there is a kind of privilege and arrogance that comes with that, that assumes that the power that they have is God-given and mm. <laughs> shouldn't be taken away, mm -hmm. when in fact it should be coming from the people, right? We the people of these United States, right? And, and in, in truth, the way that this country was founded was always with the assumption that we the people were the primary source of power, and we the people had the ability to give and take. And in in the case where voting rights are taken by legislators, there are so many other checks and balances in this country's government that allow the people to reassert that power and say, no, no, you can't do that. You can't restrict people's access to the ballot. You can't, for instance, in some states, once they saw that there were long lines and that people were coming creatively and joyously with water and chairs and ways to assist voters who are waiting in long lines, they, they, they actually outlawed that. Right. They said you cannot provide any kind of food or water or... or right, waiting in line to vote has to be like jail, right? <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Let's make this as painful as possible. Now, I will say that depending on the state, um, there are a lot of different laws about who can vote and who cannot vote, who can provide assistance, who cannot provide assistance. But we also have constitutional protections that across the board say this is the basic minimum. And so for a lot of us, what we're looking at is those U.S. constitutional provisions and sometimes some protections in state constitutions to go to courts and say, look, there are some basic standards we all can agree on regardless of what politicians who are self-interested might say out there. And I think that there still is a universe of court decisions that are protecting those rights. I don't want to say that, you know, just because there's one bad apple in the Eighth Circuit that everybody's doing that. Um, mm. there, there, there are still protections, and we're still able to seek that, even from this U.S. Supreme Court right now as it's constituted. Yeah. Well, they had a big decision where they affirmed the Voting Rights Act, and they said, nope, yet this is still, if you can show that there's been a history of discrimination, we're going to order the state, in this case um, Alabama, to redraw the lines to make sure that African-American voters have the ability to cast a ballot in, in not just one but two districts, because that's what their population and their voting patterns would suggest they need to, to protect their right to vote. Yeah, well... And uh, that surprised a lot of folks. Um, it's going to be interesting to see which way they go with uh, Trump on the ballot <laughs> in Colorado. We'll look at that when we come forward. Talking with uh, Kathy Feng of Common Cause on KBLA Talk 1580. We wish you a holiday season filled with peace and love. And a new year rich with blessings. Mask up and stay safe. From all of us at KBLA Talk 1580. Thanks for waking up with Dominique DePrima on KBLA Talk 1580. And we're talking with uh, Kathy Fang, Vice President of Programs for um, Common Cause. Probably should have started there at the beginning, Kathy, and let folks know they should know because we had a PSA running on this station for quite a while. But um, what Common Cause is, what it's all about. Sure. Common Cause was formed in 1970 by a group of people who said, Everybody has a representative in government, 
those lobbyists, all those special interests, except for we the people. And they really wanted to create an organization that would lift up regular people's voices when it comes to government policies and government representation. Since then, we have been champions of civil rights, voting rights, uh, making sure that elections are free and fair, um, monitoring places to make sure that uh, when people are trying to vote, they're eligible to vote, that we're defending their right to vote, uh, and pushing back on restrictive voting laws. So really just going in there and making sure that our laws live up to the aspiration of a more perfect union. And, um, I mean, it sounds, you know, it sounds airy-fairy or, or, or kind of uh, more like platitudes, but you guys are really on the ground doing a lot of work, including during elections, helping folks uh, to, you know, access their, their polling places, to, to report problems, um, you know, really advocating in a very boots-on-the-ground kind of way at times, right? That's right. Uh, in a lot of ways, because we have millions of members around the country, uh, when it comes to live situations, so on election days or leading up to election days, we got a lot of people who are volunteering to become poll monitors, to go out and make sure that elections are run smoothly and if there are problems, that they're reporting it up quickly so that we can resolve them. When there are pieces of disinformation that are pushed out by bad actors, um, people will participate as volunteers, report it up. We'll get it removed from platforms like Facebook and X, and then we'll, we'll push for legislation to make sure that that doesn't happen again. It's a live situation where a lot of volunteers, a lot of people who care about our country, especially in the last many, many years where they've seen how fragile it can be, have really come together to defend what we believe our country should be about. And, um, you know, if, if folks are interested, if that's something you want to volunteer or find out more about, you guys do uh, accept help, you accept donations. Um, oh, all the time. Yeah. People can go to commoncause.org, O-R-G, commoncause, one word, dot O-R-G. Yeah, I think it's important. It's sneaking up on us, but we have an election right around the corner. Um, March. Thank you. Yeah, March will be here before we know it. So Trump, um, the guy I like to call he who shall not be named, the 45th president, disqualified from the ballot <laughs> in Colorado. Uh, That's right. Because of the 14th Amendment. Um, it's obviously going to be working its way through the courts, probably not working its way, flying its way to the Supreme Court, right? <laughs> well, I will say that um, the Colorado Supreme Court made a very uh, courageous decision. Um, they looked at the facts that the lower court had had a five-day trial, listened, listened to witnesses from both sides, right? Trump got to present and have his day in court, as did um, the voters who were saying, you instigated, aided, and abetted insurrection and there should be, under the 14th Amendment, a penalty for that. That penalty is that you don't get to run for and serve in office again. The lower court found that all the evidence pointed to Trump's involvement in that insurrection, that January 6th insurrection, but all the words and language leading up to that. And then the Colorado Supreme Court said, and based on that, 
you are disqualified from being on the ballot in Colorado because the 14th Amendment says when you've taken an oath to the country to uphold our Constitution, but you have violated it by engaging in insurrection or rebellion or providing aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, that you are not allowed to run for for the presidency of the United States. And so they removed them. Now, there's a question about how quickly the Supreme Court will take up the appeal. And what's interesting is that the president is simultaneously, or former president, is simultaneously asking for an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, but also trying to slow walk it as much as possible. <laughs> the hope that he has is that it'll go through every layer of federal courts before it gets to the U.S. Supreme Court, and hopefully the elections will happen by then. The problem with that is that we already saw the kind of violence that he was able to stoke Mm. on January 6th. And if there is an election and he is on the ballot and there is some kind of question or he calls into question the results, that what we are worried about is that the violence that we saw on January 6th is only just the tippy-top point of how bad it could get because he will stoke people to believe that something was taken from him by him not being on the ballot. So, so from that standpoint, it it would be more advantageous to keep him on the ballot. Oh, no, no, no. Because then if there's a vote and then the Supreme court decides that he shouldn't have been on the ballot, I think that you would have uh, a, he would stoke a civil war. Mm, so yeah, right, so right, right, right. Because then the they'd be taking like, away whatever. Oh my is, gosh! Mm-hmm. Not being on the ballot is one thing. It's a whole different thing if there is an election and then the Supreme Court decides that he shouldn't have been on the ballot. Um, because I think that um, there's a universe of people who have gone down a rabbit hole um, and would believe that they had the right to to be able to engage in violence, to take back uh, what they believe was taken from them. Even though and he didn't win Colorado ever, um, but it, yeah. but it's all about the spin. I, I see what you're saying. It's all about the spin. Do you mm-hmm. think this gives momentum? Um, we know that um, Alaska, Arizona, Nevada, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, Oregon, South Carolina, Texas, Vermont, Virginia, West Virginia, Wisconsin, and Wyoming all have pending challenges and there's and some others uh minnesota michigan um and florida notably who um are looking at whether or not he should be on the ballot does this does colorado give them momentum well i think that what colorado did was they took the time to have a full trial Mm. Uh, and during that full trial there were experts there were witnesses police officers who were serving on duty in the Capitol that day talking about the violence and how orchestrated it was, right? That, that when they tried to block the entrances, um, how there was intentionality about um, pushing them, beating them down, causing them to be um, hurt and uh, set aside, right? And I think that That testimony was so convincing to the court that it creates a record for other courts to be able to look at. Ah. Now, as we get closer and closer to the primaries, that's going to be a challenge because uh, all of these courts are going to have to make decisions 
um, on a fairly quick timeline. And, you know, Colorado was one of the first to take it up. Uh, but, but I think what we have to say is the question that every person has to ask is, do we say that the laws apply to every person equally, or do we say that some people are above the law? And really, that's the fundamental question that's going up to the Supreme Court. Because the 14th Amendment that bars people who have taken an oath to uphold our Constitution, but then have engaged in insurrection, does that apply to everybody equally? Or do we say the president gets a get-out-of-jail-free card? And if we say that it applies to everyone equally, and the Supreme Court decides that, which I hope it will, then I think that it it really gives um, clearance to a lot of other courts and all those other states that you just listed to look at the Colorado trial decision where they had the trial and to say, okay, there's evidence of insurrection, so we've got to apply the law. We've got to apply the law equally and fairly. Kathy Feng is my guest. Uh, She's with Common Cause, continuing the conversation after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580. She's reclaiming her time on KBLA Talk 1580. More First Things First with Dominic DePrima when we come forward. Broadcasting live from Lamar Park, USA. Welcome back to your home for unapologetically progressive radio. KBLA Talk 1580. Um, Common Cause is the organization. Kathy Fang is my guest. And you guys have been busy. You stay busy. Um, suing now, uh, along with uh, the NAACP and others, um, uh, the Republican-led legislature, right, in North Carolina because of precisely what we were talking about earlier gerrymandering, drawing maps that disenfranchise black voters. Tell me about that. Yeah. Um, We're proud to stand with NAACP in a couple of different states, Florida, Georgia, and now North Carolina. Now North Carolina has been ground zero for gerrymandering for many decades. Um, And I think it doesn't matter whether it's Democrats or Republicans. In the end, the people who are always getting the the short end of the stick, who are always carved up and carved out of political representation, are African Americans, Black people, right? And and I think that really this latest lawsuit is challenging the legislature's consistent effort to try to cut up traditional communities that have been able to elect Black representatives to Congress uh, to say. You can't keep cutting up these communities because they have the right to vote. They're protected under the U.S. Constitution, and this constitutes a violation. So we're, we're bringing the lawsuit. We're hopeful, actually, that there's, there's if we look at what has happened recently in South Carolina and Alabama and Georgia, there's reason to hope that our courts are going to be able to look at all the evidence and say, no, North Carolina, you did gerrymander. You did hurt these black communities and we need to restore that right to vote. Mm. Um, And again, this is a case where you have you guys, Common Cause, individual black and Latino voters and the NAACP bringing this legal action, uh, not the Department Mm -hmm. of Justice. Yeah. Um, (laughs) It's a big country. I will say, you know, we have... (laughs) membership. So I'm just going to say, you know, uh, right, uh, right, right. It's a good point. No judgment, no judgment. But, <laughs> but our two organizations do have membership. 
right? right? And what that means is when you've got membership, you've got people for Common Cause, we've got people who live in every congressional district. And so we hear it immediately from the grassroots. They know. They're watching what's happening. They see when a line has been changed and how it cuts right through their communities and, and what that means for them, right? Um, now they can't some people are cut out of a district. They can't actually communicate with the congressional member or the assembly member or the senator who they've developed a relationship with, right? If they have a need because a hurricane is coming through North Carolina or, you know, they they need to um, have access to uh, green jobs, right? That those are the kinds of things that representatives usually, when they have been based in a community and they are connected to that community, that they are listening to their constituents. And when people are cut out of that that district, then it can have a real impact on their access to resources. Uh, so, so in truth, part of it is that our two organizations, because we have grassroots, um, we have a lot of folks who immediately come to us. You know, sometimes the lawyers are still figuring it out, but the people know what the impact is, and they'll tell us, hey, we got to do something. And that's when we immediately mobilize and in a pull together the resources to bring these kind of lawsuits. And I'll mention one other organization, the Southern Coalition for Social Justice. They just have an amazing group of lawyers, young lawyers who, in the tradition of back in the day when Thurgood Marshall, you know, was just cutting his teeth on these kind of cases, you got a lot of people who are bringing all of their skills uh, together to represent people and, and make sure that there is justice at the polls. Speaking of uh, Thurgood Marshall... Um, talk to me about the role of common cause in, in, you know, bringing, lobbying, doing whatever is possible to do to bring some accountability to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now they're saying they're going to, they're going to follow their own little, you know, Mm self-policing code of conduct, which to me is mm, okay if you say so. But, um, it does seem like you guys are playing a role in trying to bring some kind of accountability. Yeah. So one of the things that we do (laughs) is we look at how money influences politics. And we do a lot of, you know, background research to understand when money is flowing, uh, where is it coming from and who is it trying to influence. So way back when, we were one of the first organizations to call out the fact that the Koch brothers, who were behind a lot of uh, legislation that was very hurtful to labor unions, to environmental causes, because they had their own agenda, right? That they were, ha- they were hosting this secret retreat in Palm Springs every year, and they were bringing people like Justice Clarence Thomas and back then Justice Antonin Scalia, two conservative justices, to these retreats, right? So they, they were bringing a lot of conservative donors into the same space as Clarence Thomas. So we called that out and we brought a lot of people together to to start looking much more closely at what was going on in the Supreme Court. And there's a lot of, now, a lot of new evidence that has come out about the extent to which uh, certain conservative donors, mega billionaires, have funneled money, sometimes buying a house, paying for people's you know, college education, in order to keep Clarence Thomas uh, in their back pocket, right? Um, uh, in a 
spot of power uh, and voting their way. Now, he's not the only one, uh, but he certainly is the most prominent one because he sort of broadcast out there that uh, he needed more money. And then lo and behold, some of these <laughs> mega donors came up and started paying for, you know, all of all of his needs and his wife, Ginny's. Now, the interesting thing is that his wife, Ginny Thomas, is not is also a major player. She's not a bit player, right? She was at the January 6th insurrection. She was giving hourly feedback via text to President Trump. Uh, she was encouraging him uh, to get involved and stay involved, right? And every step of the way, she is another one of those links to these mega donors and to these conservative white supremacist groups. The irony never stops <laughs> with this with this couple. And because she is the link between the political donors and the political establishment and Justice Thomas, there's a real concern that any time a case might come up before the Supreme Court where um, these issues are at play, like the Colorado case, right, where the Colorado case may be raising issues about President Trump that Ginny Thomas spent all that effort and time and raising money to support, that that would affect the, the justices, um, Justice Thomas's ability to judge the case fairly. And so according to the ethics rules that they voluntarily adopted that they didn't put any enforcement mechanisms in, but they all signed on to it. There are canons that say if there is uh, anything that would suggest um, impropriety uh, or the appearance of impropriety, right, where there is some kind of self-interest involved, that a justice should recuse themselves. And this is one of those instances where the links are so clear uh, and the appearance of impropriety, if not the, ap- the absolute impropriety, exists. And is this a case that if it makes its way, the Colorado case or similar kinds of cases make their way to the Supreme Court, is this the kind of case where a justice who's wife was involved in instigating the January 6th insurrection uh, should recuse themselves. But it's rare for the Supreme Court justices to recuse themselves, right? I mean, they, they, yeah, they don't like doing it. They're, they they, they use like the excuse, it. oh, there's not enough of us, blah, 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 you know, whatever their that's excuses right. are. That's they, right. But that to me just seems, that's a bad excuse. Like, if it's unethical, it's that's unethical. Right. That's right. They're there certainly are some justices that were better at recusing mm. than others. Justice Thomas, not so much. Uh, and so I think one of the things that is a question is that as this case winds its way up to the Supreme Court, what will Chief Justice Roberts do? He's the one who pushed forward this voluntary set of ethical codes, in part because he didn't want Congress to put a, a mandatory ethical code uh, to be enforced on them. Right. And uh, he's the one who is, I think, most concerned about the uh, integrity of the institution. And so he's the one who is going to have to decide whether this is not just a voluntary thing where each justice gets to decide on their own, but if maybe there is a little bit of 
intervention, internal intervention. Maybe we don't have to see it. Maybe it's behind the scenes, but some intervention that says this is not a case that you should be deciding because it would it would uh, cause the Supreme Court to uh, have to look like um, they were self-dealing. And I think that, that the, there's already enough concern about that, given all the stories that were coming out last year about all of the millions of dollars that were donated in gifts and, you know, directly uh, to the Thomases. It's, it's, I think that the Supreme Court, particularly Chief Justice Thomas, is, uh, sorry, Chief Justice Roberts is very, very worried about what the image of the Supreme Court is. As they should be. Um, talking with Kathy Fung of a thing of common cause. I do want to, well, time goes so fast when you're on the radio, but I do want to talk when we come forward about, you know, how you feel about some of these proposed fixes to our democracy that people are talking about more and more, i.e. reforms to the Supreme Court, increasing the number of justices, term limits, i.e. getting rid of the Electoral College, um, making D.C. a state, making uh, Puerto Rico a state. Uh, can these, um, getting rid of the filibuster, where are you guys on any of these things? Are they likely to happen? Look at that when we come forward. Yes, happy holidays. We're giving you democracy for Christmas on KBLA Talk 1580. More of First Things First with Dominique DePrima when we come forward. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where hate meets a scholarly match. Okay, I'm never going to have enough time to get through all of these questions. But before we launch into all that, Kathy Fang, I want to ask you about this complaint uh, filed by a conservative uh, group against uh, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. It seems a little tit-for-tat a little retaliatory. Um, They're saying that her husband didn't disclose income um, for his medical malpractice um, consultation and that she didn't tell us enough about where the money she she got the money for her investiture. It's the Center for Renewing America. Coincidentally, it comes right after Democrats sent a letter asking for uh, Justice Thomas to recuse himself from the uh, presidential immunity uh, conversation. So what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's tit for tat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it is. And look at the scale of the difference, right? One is you got a business and you didn't tell us everything about it. Uh, the other one is your there are major donors who are buying houses for your relatives who are paying for the full college education of your relatives, you know, who are giving you levels of gifts that, you know, regular folks don't get. 38 vacations. 38 vacations. Most of us won't even take 38 vacations in our life. Uh Uh-huh. On a a private jet. All expense paid. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's levels to it. And I think just people just need to understand the difference of scale. What Justice Thomas has received in terms of gifts and, you know, lavish trips, that is on the level of somebody trying to exert influence and corrupt the decisions of this justice. And that's a very different thing than somebody not reporting everything on their form the way they should have. Justice Kentaji Brown-Jackson should um, do what she needs to to comply with the law. There is no doubt about that. But this is tit for tat. Mm. So what about these fixes that we keep hearing about? Uh, Should we get rid of the Electoral College, for example? Yeah, let's start with that. 
Yes, we should. That is a process that I think very few of us understand until yeah. we get to every presidential year. And I think that moving to a national popular vote is the most obvious choice. We now have the ability to be able to tabulate everybody's vote relatively quickly to be able to determine how each state's voters want to choose a president. And I think it absolutely makes sense for us to choose our president based on what the national popular vote is, not based on the allocation of electoral college votes from each state where we don't even know how those people were chosen. We don't know, you know how they're going to cast their ballot. The, the idea that each state, you know, basically gets a certain number based on something that's already misapportioned. Um, California, based on our population, should have a lot more electoral votes than we do. But because back in the day, as they were creating the Constitution, they were very concerned about trying to hold on to the votes of these smaller states, they granted a lot of concessions, and one of them was the electoral college. The other one is two senators per state, no matter how many people live there, right? That's right. <laughs> I mean, I, but are, how, there's so many things, and, and and I'll say the fact that we are stuck at 435 members of the House of uh, Representatives means that again, you hit this cap where a state like California should have far more representatives than we do. But because you start with uh, in the House of Representatives, you you also start with a certain number, and then you roll up from there. Um, so by all measures. Um, We've got a number of different things in the way that we count uh, people to be allocated to uh, deciding how many House of Representatives there are to the way that we count votes uh, to decide who our president's going to be. Those things should be changed. I'm going to add one more thing, which is prison-based gerrymandering. Mm. Uh, depending on the state, California has made some big changes and good changes, right? But um, many, many states still count uh, the census counts people based on where they are, which means that those people who are incarcerated are counted in prison instead of their last known address. Now, we all know because of mass incarceration, thousands, millions of people are removed from their last known address. And But when they finish their time, the place that they're going back to is, you know, their home community. And so the way that we allocate resources, the way that we allocate votes, the way that we draw our districts should be based on the communities that they come from, not these prisons, because we shouldn't create an incentive uh, to place a, a prison in a low population rural community where they get to count those votes, uh, those people for purposes of redistricting, but they don't get to, they don't give them the power of the vote. I mean, it's almost like taking so, votes from our communities and moving them to rural uh, communities by, uh, by incentivizing and incarcerating us. It is. And there's one more bill that is really exciting. Ayanna Presley um, uh, has introduced a bill called Inclusive Democracy that would say, if you're incarcerated, uh, but if you are 18 and a citizen, you should be able to vote. In other words, the right to vote should not depend on uh, a conviction or whether you're currently serving time. That would immediately change the dynamics of how people view the prison industry as a moneymaker uh, regardless of the lives that are destroyed. Yep. And, and uh, you know, I heard Nikki Giovanni, the poet, talking about this 
years ago, and it really um, stayed with me. Why are we taking away people's right to vote because they're incarcerated? You are serving your time. You are allegedly paying your your debt to society and being uh-huh. rehabilitated. Wouldn't it make more sense for you to remain engaged and have a stake? That's right. That's right. And studies show that if you if you do have the ability to remain engaged, uh, that you're you're keeping up with the happenings in your community that you are, um, uh, uh, you've got a connection, um, to people who are on the outside that you have a better chance when you reenter, uh, to be able to build a life again. Um, and the other thing that I think is really interesting is that there are a few places that have given people who are currently incarcerated the right to vote, Maine and Vermont. Hmm, I did not know that. Think about who lives there and who's likely to be incarcerated. It isn't black people. <laughs> yeah, that is and rather also, interesting. I'll give credit to Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. also granted, but they don't have a whole lot of people who are um, in that system. But, but there are a lot of big states that are talking about it now, and I think that that's an important conversation. Got about a minute, a little over a minute here, um, Kathy Feng. What do you? What should we be doing? All these things seem so daunting. You know, give the Supreme Court real ethics. Get rid of the Electoral College. You know, give DC statehood. I threw that one in there. What? <laughs> what should we be doing if we want to make a difference in these big picture issues? So I think it can feel daunting when it feels like you're just one person. Right. But know that there are amazing organizations, Common Cause. NAACP, people have, you know, local organizations that you can get involved in because when you get involved in an organization, then your one voice is amplified to hundreds, thousands, millions, right? And then you can really take action. And we've seen in election after election, when people volunteer to become poll monitors to protect the vote, that even when it's an off year, and I'll just use Ohio as an example, the legislature tried to do a lot of things (laughs) in these off-year, you know, uh, um, August and September elections that were not normal dates for elections. And because people banded together, they organized and they pushed back, people were able to, number one, push back on the legislature's attempt to try to take away the right of the initiative. Number two, they were able to pass a constitutional amendment Mm. to protect reproductive rights. That's huge. Mm-hmm. In an off year in September. And that's because when people come together, you have a lot of power. So what I'll say is don't act alone. Do act alone. You know, do your thing. But but <laughs> become find that organization that inspires you and get involved that way. Because when you when one becomes a million, that one million can move mountains. And that is how the civil rights movement achieved what it did, right? It is how we elected our first black president. You know, things that people said, not in my lifetime, I will never see these things. It's because people came together. Yeah, absolutely. Kathy Fang, thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate you. Thank you, Dominique. Always a pleasure.